Okay, this is Devin Dots. This is our socialist podcast. Again, there's a bunch of stuff I usually say here. I don't know what it is. So we're just going to jump into it. We're leftists. That's what it is, right? I, I don't know that we can say their stuff. I mean, this is what, our fourth I think so. yeah. episode? I don't, I don't know you, that we usually do anything at this point. Uh, I don't know. Well, I'm Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Larry. I'm Scott. All right. And this is the thing we said it was. Um, so, <laughs> um, so Scott. Yeah. You have some stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I, uh, I, I'm really a fan of, of getting involved in a very direct and local level with politics and, and, and not so much interested in, you know, the kind of um, let's react to whatever's topical in, in the news and and I think you guys, you know, all three of us have been involved in grassroots local politics. Yeah. And um, one thing that we're seeing right now is this huge upsurge in energy post the 2016 presidential election, um, particularly the energy that came from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, uh, of the Democratic Party, and and also people from all corners of of our society that were energized by that message and then horrified by the victory of Donald Trump. Right. And we've seen all this grassroots activism in the wake of that. One way that's played out locally, for example, was this week's special election. In the 197th uh, state representative district, this is a great saga of local politics, this is in the heart of North Philadelphia. This district is so overwhelmingly Democratic. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's just, it, I, I, you know, there are probably entire precincts where they don't have enough people to sign Republican petitions to get on the ballot to be, you know, serve on the local committee, right. where they, you know, that's how overwhelming the partisan uh, registration advantage is. So, ironically, the Democrats ran a candidate who doesn't even live in the district. There you go. They they decided to fight it in court when he got ejected, and they waited too long with the court fight. So that by the time they had a replacement candidate ready, it was past the deadline. And so the Republicans had managed to find a candidate, get enough signatures, get on the ballot. They had a legitimate candidate on the ballot. The Democrats did not. The other factor in this was a Green Party candidate, anti-poverty activist Sherry Hunkala, um, who is a, an awesome person, I think. Uh, she actually was a vice presidential candidate nationwide for the Green Party. Yep. She uh, formed and, and, I don't know, if she, was she the, the founder? She was one of the key figures of the Kensington Welfare Rights Union. Yes. And yep. they first got a lot of attention by walking from Kensington, which is in northeast northeast Philadelphia or North Philadelphia, depending on where you draw the line, all the way to Harrisburg, which, for those of you who don't know, is the center of the state. It is a several-hour car drive, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, on an interstate. Yeah. So they walked, and it got. A, it was a. You know, this is someone who has been doing uh, a lot of publicity at- attracting activism. She did the um, a Beans for Bernie protest at the Democratic Convention, where they ate a lot of beans and farted a lot on the convention floor. I, you know things like that that are fun and whimsical and get attention for serious issues. So she's she got she tried to get on the ballot and because someone at the Green Party, surprise, surprise, didn't have their act together, they <gasps> filed the wrong form and the wrong... T- they were a day late with, I think it was the Statement of Financial Interest, okay. uh, one of the things that you're supposed to file when you run for office. Um, and I can tell you as a candidate for public office, it can be confusing this is not Sherry's first radio. I think it's shame on her for trusting some person in a disorganized party to do it. But, you know, she went to court to say, look, this is a technical thing. The voters should have a choice. 
The court said, nope. Yeah. So we got to the special election where there was a Republican on the ballot. Unsurprisingly, in this machine town that we live in, um, they did a huge write-in push, and the Republican candidate got 198 votes, which uh, compared to... Uh, when you're the only button to push. Yeah. You know, okay, there you go. <laughs> Emilio Vasquez, the ward leader uh, that the Democrats put up there at the last minute and therefore too late, has apparently unofficially been, de- you know, been de- uh, he's been declared the unofficial winner. They counted the write-in ballots today. He got 75% of the vote. Sherry Hunkyle, unfortunately, only got 10% of the vote, uh, despite, you know, a lot, of, mm-hmm. a lot of push from progressive activists who were very energized Again, they've been doing a lot of this direct action. They've been doing a lot of protests. They've been involved in a lot of community organizing. But I think that the fact that they fell short highlights a weakness that we have at this moment. Um, I think that it's not enough to talk to other people who are outraged and who are politically uh, tuned in. I think what the advantage of you know that Amelia Vasquez had is that. For better or for worse, he is a fixture in the community. He runs these... I mean, the, the man's dirt. And I only go into all the things I don't like about him. But he has been working in that community, making connections to people for a very long time. And yeah, there was some, probably some illegal electioneering that went and dirty stuff that went on in the polls. It's, not, it's never enough to get you to 75%. I mean, it's, it's the man legitimately won the election. And the reason why is for years and years and years... He's been involved with the community, making friends and connections, and knowing people. And that's a politics or a popularity contest. All politics are local. All politics are local. And I think that, um, you know, one thing that a lot of progressive activists don't really like doing, I mean, a lot of them do, but a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking to strangers outside right. of the context of right. they'll have a, an event and, they, and they'll talk to everyone who mm-hmm. comes to the event. Um, and for the, you've been involved in local parties, and lo, you know how few committee people actually go door to door in their own precinct. In the in in our suburban parties, where it's largely very progressively minded people, not machine politicians. Machine politicians go door to door. They'll know every single person on their block. They'll know what their needs are. They'll know that they'll think of ways to solve the problems of the people in their constituency. They'll personally hand them a phone number and say, if you need something, give me a yeah. call. Right. And so for better or for worse, that's what really wins elections. Yep. And so, you know, I, I think all of us really, and this is, I, I don't know, you know, I should probably just go right into it. I, I'm running for township treasurer in Upper Darby. And I'm someone who said he was never going to run for public office. And, what happened after the election was I, I decided, well, I've been involved in politics since I was in high school. Somehow we still have Donald Trump. Yeah. So what else can I do that I haven't done before that I can do going forward? And I got talked into running for this office. And township treasurer is not exciting. I, I would be elected to sign checks. That's it. They've, they've stripped all the real power from the position long ago. Um, it's the way the Republican machine in Delaware County works. They don't want oversight. But I'm using the campaign as a way to engage with people in my community. Um, and I'm asking people to do the same thing I did, which is you know, I knock on some old lady's door. I say, look, can I talk to you for a minute? I'm with the Democratic Party locally. We've got problems. And they laugh at that because they know mm-hmm. we're, in, we have, we're in a bad place. One of my favorite quotes is uh, Groucho Marx. I'm not a part of <laughs> any organized party. I'm a Democrat. Right. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I say, look, th- this is really about 
you and your community. I don't want to come here and tell you that I'm some political savior that's going to solve all your problems. I want to help you realize your own power. And I think that uh, one thing that... that one thing that I am starting to see is a, a renewed emphasis on community organizing. And I'm using my campaign as a community organizing tool. And what I'd like to do is, is set up precinct-level committees where people can talk to each other, interact about, you know, when are we going to clean up all the litter on the block? When are we going to repave the alley between our houses? Who wants to organize a block party? And then beyond that, hey, why isn't the township doing this? And then you know, understanding that when they're all together making those complaints, they'll be a lot stronger, and they'll be able to maybe solve some of their own problems without having to rely on on. You know, so this is that kind of organization is sorely needed, and it, ultimately, if we don't have that kind of organization, we're going to run into the same problem. And and it's not like Shirley Hunkala hasn't been on the ground trying to do this for years. It, this is hard work. Yeah, and it and it's difficult work, and you need a lot of people helping you. Um, I think that this is the work that we all need to be engaged with going forward, is that we can't just go out there and ask people to vote for us because we have better ideas. We have to go out there and be something to them and be something that, you know, and, and not even be like a savior, but just be the instigator. And, you know, I'm meeting all kinds of people who I never knew lived in my neighborhood, and I've been doing this for years, so I do know a lot of people already. But when you go around as a candidate, there's a certain magic to that, right? I mean, um, you know, people open their doors and invite you in because, oh, the candidate is here. This is not just some volunteer activist. This is my access to someone who might be in power someday. This is my access to be heard about all my problems. And, and so there's a certain magic there. And there's also a certain freedom as a candidate. You can just be yourself. And I mean, if you, you can, if you can adopt that kind of courage, you can just be yourself. And you're not account, you're not, it's not like you're representing somebody else. See, that's an interesting point of view because when I was uh, more into the local level politics, I'm still abreast of it. It's just, it's tough. It really is. Oh, it's so hard. When I would go out on behalf of canvassing local Democrats or even congressional Democrats, even congressional races that people would be interested in, senatorial races, when you're canvassing, you're knocking up on doors and you're talking to these people, they don't really care about you. Right. And and you're just some dude with a clipboard. I'm yeah. some dude with a clipboard who knows where I'm from, who knows how much I actually know. I'm a kid. Not really. I was like 23 at the time, <laughs> 25 at the time. But I'm a kid in their eyes who doesn't really know much. Why? Why? But for every three or four not interested in talking, they have to get. They have. They're doing something else. You get one person who. That's a good contact rate. Yeah. Well. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get you'll get a few people out there who are genuinely interested. They they didn't want to be engaged before, but now they're they, they understand that somebody who has the passion to come to them and talk to them is, is it's in, it's immeasurable to some people. And that's the concept of a deep canvassing, right? I mean, it's like I sit down with these people in their homes. At this point of the campaign, I'm trying. It's not like I'm just at, I, I'm on, I'm unopposed in the primary. Mm-hmm. This is a, a long marathon. At this point, I'm trying to identify local leaders potential activists, people who, who give a damn. And I'm letting them know that I give a damn and I'm listening to them and I'm telling people, you know, I don't need your answer for what it is you're going to be doing for, you know, for people outside yourself. Like, you know, I'm challenging everyone. Think of the one thing you're going to do, right? And it doesn't have to be politics. It could be coaching youth basketball. Yeah, but yeah. that's, this is how you build community leaders because that person who coaches youth basketball is going to get to know a whole lot of parents. And they're going to, 
and people are just going to naturally just talk to each other about everything that's going on in their lives if, when, once they know each other. And if we rebuild these community networks, you know, we rebuild power in our community. And that's, you know, when we, we worry about, oh, we can't find anyone to work in the election board and we can't find anyone to be in the Democrat. All that political stuff will take care of itself if the community is organized because the community will use the political system to solve its own problems. And, and there's something else to it, too. And, and my experience with this is through politics. Uh, canvassing, doing, you know, those things. And something that Mike said rung a bell with me. I remember knocking on doors. So I, I started in a Democratic Party when I was 18 years old as a committeeman. And I remember knocking on doors, just Democrats, saying to me, who are you and where did you come from? They were so excited. <laughs> oh, well, back that, then, that, no Democrat had ever knocked on right, their door in Upper Darby. That a Democrat came to their door. Mm-hmm. All right. I remember the first time I worked a polling place was in a November election, and the Republicans were excited to see a Democrat. <laughs> like, it was odd. Like, it was and, like a curiosity. And, and the Republicans in my polling place were not confrontational. They were actually very nice people. Yeah. Um, th- there was no real, there was no ever, never a problem. Um, and I remember just the, the act of doing it, of trying to do something, will get some people to notice. Now, you're not going to get all those people to come help you. No. No. But it changes something a little bit, you know, and, and it means something in a community. Um, and you will get a few people who come out. Yeah. Uh, and that's how it starts. Yeah. And, and it's not like, look, there's, it's not, it's nothing. It, it's not a new idea. It's not like I've come up with some kind of like, aha, Eureka. You know, only people had shown up face to face. Yeah, this is this is the oldest political trick in the book, and it's this is how you build power. This is how you know, you get engaged with the community. You become something to someone else, and then you ask them to do something for you. Um, and ultimately, though, you know, by it, it, you have to be careful because if you do, the, if if you become the person who is, I'm here to help you. You're you're not helping them really. You're you're providing something to them, perhaps, yeah. but you're not. You know, to, for this to truly be revolutionary, and for us to try to build, you know, a socialist future, people have to. You, you know, I'm going to use the seize control uh, <coughs> phrase, but people do have to seize control of their own destiny, and this is the the thing I struggled with in union organizing too. Workers tend to re- recognize the union in this day and age, as an independent entity, a third party, an outside thing. And what the aha moment, when you run an organizing campaign, when you run it the right way, it was always because the workers figured out that this wasn't an an organization that they were joining, that they either were or were not already a union, or or they would or would not create their own union. Because... A union is just a group of people working together in concert in an organized way. And, you know, the international or national group that, you know, comes in with a group of letters and a number, it ideally, is just there to administer the will of the people who are involved in the shop floor and collectively in a larger sense, right? And ultimately, you know, our local governments are supposed to be that, yeah. Yeah. and our party or- local party organizations are supposed to be that, but th- right. th- they're not, and they never really can be because they're exclusive groups. Each precinct can have two elected committee people and then two appointed committee people in the Democratic Party, right? Mm-hmm. There are se- uh, 
51 registered voters in my precinct, I think, or 651. And, you know, that's just, that's both parties. That's all parties. And I think that, you know, four people doesn't really represent them in a in a real dynamic way unless they're like full-time people. And, and we're all people who work jobs, and quite frankly, I'm the only committee person in our precinct who does anything. And... Yeah. You know, it's fine. We have a, a responsive councilwoman who will answer your calls and, like, take care of your problem if you need to. But And where you live, council's a part-time job, too. Right? Council's a part-time yeah. job. But, but it doesn't really make you any more in control of your, of your destiny. It just gives you a, a complaint line, essentially. Yeah. And so what I'm pointing out to people is if, if they organize themselves with their neighbors, not only will they have power that people will be forced to listen to them and reckon with them, they'll also have a better quality of life because we all want to live on that block where everybody knows everybody and people people like you know watch out for each other's kids and they say hey put that down i know where you're, you know we all kind of want that mayberry or old school row home atmosphere a lot of us grew up with it some I, of us didn't and some of us see it on tv or hear about it and want to have it or, pe- or people who come from other countries are used to it and now we're all living on a block and everyone on my block's from a different country and no one knows anyone but I go and knock on all their doors, and I know them all. They're really great people, and, they, and I'm trying to get them to know each other. And that's that's really what this is about: mm-hmm. is getting. And then hopefully, uh, you know, at the end of the day, I can just kind of step back and be like, "Great, you guys are in charge," because I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to run for office in the first mm-hmm. place. But I think that's the kind of work that we all need to be focused on. And when we can build that organization in parallel to the existing structures that we have and we can build it to be strong, that's when we can take down a Democratic committee that's capable of winning a special election with 75% of the vote without even being on the ballot. And and it's it's like what you said at the beginning of this. Um, There's all these people, all this anger, all this energy, but it's not really being channeled into anything productive. So when when you talk about Upper Darby and your your area of Upper Darby – you know, you have 11 precincts in your ward, in your, in your district, and nine of them don't have people working the polls. You know, like, like it, it, so we have all these people, but it, the sexier thing is to, to go to the protest, mm-hmm. to, to go yell at your congressman. Who's gonna, and I you know, yell, and I'll yell at anyone. Right, any, and, any, and, and, and that's fine. I'll, that's all you do. I, I, I go out in the street and but, yell at people all the time, but but, you know. but then they're not translating in anything. So I remember there's I, no path. To, I mean, most protests don't have a path to power. No, they're, they're just they're, they're, they're make, expressions of, of a feeling at the time. Well, they're expressions of weakness, is what they are. It's an expression of powerlessness in many cases to go out there and just simply rage. Unless you have a strategic agenda that you're building towards. I mean, if you're not building towards anything, if you're just yelling at someone to get them to do the right thing, who cares? And I think it's also the feeling of, I want to be with other angry people so I know I'm not alone in this. And there's, and a, there's, a, val- there's a value to that. that there is. Yeah. But I remember I was, uh, for a brief time, and... And I'm not saying protests are like a worthless... No, they're not. Uh, ...endeavor or a waste of time. There are times when I've looked right. at protests and thought, really, you're going to do it now? Instead of six months ago when it would have mattered. But okay. <laughs> um, I remember I was very briefly president of the Delaware County Young Democrats. I remember that. That is a sexy and, title. And um, and it's not. Uh, I know that from first-hand we experience. We so much power. Um, but I remember we would get a lot of people to come out to, like, parties. So they said, they told us in the beginning, throw a couple parties. 
like and, and maybe have a speaker or something people will come to that so a party party and then what you can do is turn that into working at the polls or a campaign i thought that's what i want so we did a couple of parties people would come out they and, loved it. and that can work it can and then when we'd ask them to say hey we have this candidate we're gonna do a canvas i'd never get any responses and i thought damn you know so there's there's the fun side of that people want to and that's when I, I quit. I said I don't want to be. I don't want to run a social organization, you know. Um, and then it was dormant for like a bunch of years until <laughs> they found somebody else to do it. Um, who, who, do they even have one now? I doubt it. Yeah, I yeah. doubt it. Um, but our, we 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 planned this thing for months and had the best of ideas that you know best of intentions, things we were going to do, and it never got anywhere because we couldn't get the people who wanted to come to the social thing to do the work. And, and for the record, as a, a young Democrat back then, under, well, uh, under your, mainly I was active under your predecessor, mm-hmm. Tony. Uh, I was the person who did all the work and never came to the parties, <laughs> including driving out to Harrisburg to try to yeah. vote for yeah. a state chairmanship that never happened. But Yeah, I was there for that, too. Yeah. Um, well. Yeah. I remember getting out there and being like, well, it's not going to be a thing. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. It was nice driving to Harrisburg and... 10 degrees below zero weather. What are your personal stories? How did you get started? All right. You want to go first or do you want? I, you know, for me, it's punk rock activism. And I, you know, it started with a lot of protests and yelling and, and being angry and then thinking, well, this didn't work. What else will work? And getting involved in all sorts of radical political organizations, some of them, which are just garbage, like, you know, the, socialist cults that seem to do nothing but sell newspapers uh, to the Green Party to, um, you know, all, all, all sorts of more specific issue-based things. Uh, some really good ones like the Sierra Club. I, I know they're, sure, kind yeah. of, they're kind of a very mainstream, like old-school organization. They also happen to be the most effective environmental lobbyist group in history. Yeah. And to this day, they are one of the few that actually can get something of a legislative agenda through in, in a lot of states. They're very effective, they, mainly because they do a lot of grassroots organization. Um, I got involved with um, some local campaigns when I was in college and then uh, you know, graduated through uh, Green Party partisan politics into Democratic partisan politics by basically finding candidates who I thought, this person's a good guy, he's going to shake things up, I'm going to get involved and help this person get elected, right? That was what I thought would be a fun thing to do. Um, and I guess it's because when I was younger, the importance of elections was really stressed to me by my parents. And I was, you know, I definitely, you know, that middle-class bourgeois kind of like, you know, it's your duty to vote. Um, you know, it's your civic duty. And, you know, and, and it's true. And, you know, one of the things that the Republicans have that as a virtue, which I will tip my hat to them, they show up and vote. Yeah. In Upper Darby, if forty, uh, you know, in a local election, forty percent of Republicans come out, twenty-five percent of Democrats come out. So we don't win until twenty-five percent of Democrats is a higher number than forty percent of Republicans. If we got forty percent of Democrats to come out, there would be no Republicans elected in Upper Darby Township. So I think you know this is the kind of thing that we need to get better at. Is that uh, you know elections aren't the only thing, and electoral politics is not the only thing. But it's a very important component to building power and achieving anything in the society. And, you know, and I guess I kind of always knew that. So for me, it was being disenchanted with mainstream politics, getting turned on, you know, because let's face it, the mainstream politicians are mostly garbage, getting turned on to radical politics through punk rock and then deciding to take that 
ideologies, you know, the ideology that I developed and constructed for myself and saying, okay, let me bring this to the arena. And, but that's just, I'm a weirdo, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know that that's a good lesson that like your average person who's, most people are out there going after the things that bring them happiness and joy and personal satisfaction and, and that's not politics for no, most people. It, politics is awful. It's not, it, like you know? I, I am so interested in politics and I follow it, but my God, I do not get joy from it. Well, I mean, how many, you, you meet so many toxic people, you get it, betrayed. There's yeah. a lot of like, there's a lot of personal attacks and it can be very degrading, humiliating and disheartening. I remember it the, doesn't have to, but it, but it can be. I remember the first yeah. time I met a sitting congressperson who I had, I didn't know him before I had seen him talk in debates and, he seemed like everybody's uncle. And I think you guys know who I'm talking about. But when I talked to him, just a blank fucking slate. And it was really, it really bummed me out. I think that was my first experience of being disillusioned with politics. That these, that these representatives maybe weren't very representative. This is a sitting congressman in Pennsylvania? Hey, 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 hey. That's Still me. sitting? Maybe. Uh-huh. Semi-literate? <laughs> He has a hell of a handshake. Yeah, I think my dad played little well, played little league with him, and he, yeah. he didn't even know how to tie his shoes, and he was like in his t- late teens. I'd be surprised if he doesn't get an intern to tie his shoes now. Yeah, but well, you know, he is a congressperson because he goes out and he knows how to talk to people. He knows how to look them in the eye and speak to them. And the effectiveness, the efficacy of face to face contact and talking pe- talking to people about what you believe and why you believe it, and what you're doing there bothering them at this moment. It, it helps. It, it absolutely is 100% the best way to go about it. You can phone bank and talk to somebody on the phone. You can... You and can phone banking can be, phone yeah, bank can be great. Phone I, I actually flyer, enjoy it. Phone yeah. banking, flyers, uh, uh, the, the meet and greet parties Larry was talking about, they all may do something, but it doesn't have that feeling of when you meet somebody face-to-face and you shake their hand. Correct. I, I, I agree. I think, you know... Um, there are a lot of good people out there that don't feel comfortable talking to people because they have social anxiety, and yep. they have and and I and I get that. I mean, I I mean, I don't I don't grok it. I, I'm not built like that necessarily. I mean, I have social anxiety. We all do, but I don't. It's not a crippling kind of social anxiety. But I can understand why that could be really oh, hard and stressful thing for someone. And I understand why people don't want to do that. Um, and all I can say to that is that. Um, I could still use your help in other ways. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and I think any candidate would find a way to, to tap into that. Um, those people can be very talented and they can, you know, you can do, there's ways to exp- to build your skills. You know, one of the greatest uh, activists I ever met was a woman named Lois Gibbs. She uh, became famous in, uh, if you're familiar with Love Canal, mm-hmm. in yeah, upstate yeah. New York, there was a, it was a toxic site, got a whole lot of people sick. And this is a woman who was a housewife, did, did you know, no work outside the home, uh, raised her family, cared about her family, you know, was totally inward, you know, my priority is my family and a couple of friends in the community. Not a social, not a social person, really. I mean, she didn't have a lot of confidence in that. And then she found out that the toxic thing was going on and she figured out, I don't I forget how she figured this out, but that the company was assigning dollar values to human lives. Mm-hmm. And they were assigning values to her husband based on how much money he could be expected to make through his, his lifetime. Okay, his son could also be expected to make that much money in his lifetime. She 
did not make any money in her lifetime. The daughter did not make it, what could be expected to not make any money in her lifetime. So the dollar value they placed on the people for a compensation was how much money they could be. So for a family, they would calculate the total amount they would pay to the family based on the father and the son, not the, the wife and the daughter. And it wasn't her devaluation that bothered her so much. It was that someone else had made a decision that her daughter's life was worthless. Yeah. It outraged her so much, and she didn't know what to do. There was no organization getting involved with this. This was really early days in this whole thing. She just decided to go knock on her neighbor's doors and see what could be done about it. And the first door she knocked on, she didn't even wait for an answer. She ran away in tears and threw up in the bushes. And then she went home and thought, they said my daughter's life was worthless. And she found the strength because she realized, the, you know, she found her anger. And in that anger, it gave her strength because they said her daughter's life was worthless. That this, that this is so important that she had to find a way to overcome that. And she went out and knocked on doors and she slowly got, because there's only one way to get better at it, it's by doing it. Yeah. She slowly got better at it, and she became an absolute powerhouse. And when I was doing Green Corps, she came in and uh, did a training for us and told this story, and I was so moved, I've never forgotten it. And it, it taught me that anything that I feel uncomfortable doing, asking for money, right? I, I hate it. Everyone hates it. Um, yeah. But sometimes it's important. You need money to be able to do the good work that, mm-hmm. you know, and you have to understand that you need to give me this money. I don't, I'm not asking for this money because I need this money. You need to give me this money because th- we, need this, we need this money to accomplish the things that are important to you. Right. And so getting that confidence is something you, you can only get through practice. And I, I think I would encourage everyone to at least try to overcome those anxieties and, and that reticence. Mm-hmm. What pushed you into politics, Larry? Well, when I, w- I was raised by a New Deal Democrat, my grandfather, who uh, was a big FDR guy, and that's that's where I sort of got that uh, the FDR affinity. But when I was 18 years old, my first election I was eligible to vote in was Gore Bush. The first vote I ever cast was for Al Gore. Interesting that you call it Gore Bush. Most people call it Bush Gore. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I uh, after that, I voted in the uh, spring primary, 2001 primary, that no Democrat, I think, in my whole precinct voted in. And that's when I got a call from my local township chairman in Upper Darby to come out and be a member of the committee, and I did. And do you have dollar for a dollar to give to the Democrats? <laughs> that's, that's, dollars for Democrats. That that was something we did. Um, <laughs> we we didn't get a lot of dollars. Um, but but the funny thing about it was, um, one of you had said something about how it can be demoralizing doing this. And I don't ever remember an election night where I was happy. <laughs> Even when you won? Even Well, the few times we won. Uh, the only winning campaign... Well, there was a couple campaigns that won that I was on. My first one, I remember winning, and there was a split second where I went, oh, we won this. And it wasn't in Upper Darby. It was in <laughs> Haverford. Um, and we won, and I went, oh. And then there was a second where I went... Man, this is how it could have felt all those other times, and it did. and then I was like down again. I was uh, like, "Oh, this is awful." That seems know? like a personal problem. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, because well, b- because we had never been able to do any of this stuff before, right? Um, and and every loss compounded the losses before. It was very kind of odd. But then there was also a drive to keep going. So, all right, we lost. How are we going to win? What are we going to do tomorrow? 
And I remember... Why did we lose? How do we avoid that yeah, next time? What, what the post-mortem is almost... Yeah. You know, it, it's like it, you become obsessed with yeah. all the little details after the fact. I remember counting votes one night. And at, after coming out of the polling place like 9 o'clock at night, I threw my pen so far and so hard, I think I threw my shoulder out. And it hurt for like days because I was so angry that we lost an election we had no business even being in because we had no people. Somebody just put their name on the ballot. It's like, you know, but I was still mad about it. Um, and I, uh, that was the Lend us your name. Yeah. We just, we don't need to run a campaign. You just lend us your name for our ballot. And, and there was a lot of that in the Democratic Party at that time. Um, still but, is. But, yeah. our, but, but then there's the other parts of it too, like where we would do flea markets. And we, somebody gave us all, like a sporting goods store closed, sports store closed, and they gave us all this stuff. C&M. Yeah. And we sold it at flea markets for years, actually. <laughs> and people bought this stuff. And like, so we did all this, all this crazy stuff, dollars for Democrats. We did everything we could think of. Um, and gradually, you, you kept thinking, hopefully, the thing I'm doing now will mean something five years from now. Because it'll build. And that's so important because I think right now all these people who are getting involved in politics for the first time, or they're getting involved maybe in a particular aspect of politics, like electoral politics or protest politics for the first time, it's very, you know, it's important to remember that it's a marathon, not a sprint. Right. And that we will have lots of defeats. You know, we didn't win the Democratic National Committee reorganization election, right? We didn't win the 197th special election. We didn't win this. We didn't win that. Of course we didn't. You know, people, especially people in third-party politics, talk about how the Republican Party came out of nowhere one day. But they forget that the Republican Party was around for, like, what, 15 years? They, they, they won lots of little local elections. They, you know, they... Anytime you build power, like, the... the, the <laughs> The Bolsheviks, you know, were around for years before the Russian Revolution. I mean, you need to you need to develop your your skills and you need to develop your infrastructure so that when the right pl- opportunity comes, you're prepared, you're organized, and you're not you're not trying to meet the people in the neighborhood. You're calling the people you already know and telling them to get all their neighbors out. I mean, you you've already established these relationships, and it it's I mean, right now we're seeing the finally seeing the results of all the work we did back yeah. in the early 2000s in Upper Darby. And it was, it's, it's long, hard work dealing with people in official positions breaking laws to, to try to interrupt your work and, and you know, people who don't care. And I think now there's an opportunity here that we can finally capitalize on and we're still struggling to build infrastructure. Yeah. And I think that's the lesson we learned is that there is no substitute for the fundamentals. No. And, and, and the slow slog... And it's not satisfying as doing something quick and fun, but it's that slow slog that eventually builds the big, great victories yeah. down the road. Yeah. I'm like, what brought you into all this? Uh, I was 18 in 2003, and George God, W. Bush young. invaded Iraq. And well, not personally. Well, it was kind of personal. <laughs> they went after his dad. Yeah. I, I I actually have the opposite story. I came from Southwest Philadelphia in a neighborhood that is destitute now. It hasn't been revitalized the way the, the rest of the city has. It's still in that deterioration that I remember from when I was a kid. Crack vials on the street, shit like that. They still have the the street paint on the crosswalks from the from the nineteen seventy six centennial on some of those side streets wow. going, over, going across Woodland Avenue. Wow! They actually you, you look down, it's like wait, the crosswalk is red, white, and blue, and 
that's a 76. Yeah. Which means yeah. it hasn't been resurfaced since 1976. Uh, both... Both of my parents, most of my family, uh, staunch conservatives. They don't call themselves Republicans. They've always called themselves conservatives, which I've found interesting because they never voted any other way. And they don't talk about libertarian politics. They don't really, they don't, they're not politically active in the sense that they don't go to meetings. They don't talk about a lot of politics unless it's, they're trying to provoke me into an argument, mm-hmm. which they like. Uh, they, they're, they're people who vote, though. They, yeah. the like you had said, you tipped your hat. They show up to vote, and my God, they do. But I was for the record, I'm not actually wearing a hat because I'm indoors. For the record, it's one of those chef's hats. That has <laughs> very odd. On the top. We don't understand why he does it. He he does it all the time. Yeah, these are lies. But continue. And uh, I was, I was somebody. I think I mentioned once before. I was a little shit in a Che Guevara T-shirt, and I was reading the Communist Manifesto, and. I started reading Noam Chomsky and I started watching videos of him online, YouTube. And there was one thing I remembered mostly because I was at that age where it was very much, it would be very easy for me to be both sides are the fucking same. I don't want to get into politics. It's not going to matter who you vote for. And this is back before, you know, 2000, it was kind of a, it was kind of a, an edgy hip meme Rage Against the Machine had that video where Al Gore and <laughs> and George W. Bush's faces combined, and it's like it's the same thing. But I could Republicrats. But uh, this woman said to Noam Chomsky, "Well, what do what do we do as third party candidates? They say we can't win." And he said, "You're probably not going to win. Support the side that is nominally better because incremental politics mm-hmm. can make changes." I, I don't know, probably not a direct quote, but no, but that's that that's the gist of it, right? And the woman flipped out, <laughs> and he just stood there. He listened to her complaints, and she was. For anybody who's been to Democratic meetings, there are lunatics, right? Any meeting, yeah. Any meeting any is an meeting. excuse for some shut-in. Well, particularly Democratic Party. Well, you know, any any you form any civic organization, some yes. some weirdo is going to show up and try to disrupt it. Listen, if you're if your committee meetings in the back room of a community center that hasn't been repainted in twenty years, you're going to attract. The, they're going to have giant glasses and a big brimmed hat, and it's going to have buttons all yeah. over that fucking hat that make no sense. Oh, we had a lot of those. Yeah. If you have to schedule your committee meetings around bingo nights. <laughs> Which we had to do. Right. Yeah. But um, uh, she, she yelled her points at him, and he was fine. He, he made the points. The 40-hour work week, weekends, uh, child labor. These were all incremental pr- uh, progressions done by mainstream politicians after political will was there. So if you show up with the political will and you ha- and you lay your agenda straight, if if people understand what people actually want, it, there's a possibility that can get done. I think what's happened more recently is the only voices that politicians, particularly incumbent politicians, tend to hear are the ones that are handing them checks in their offices, ones that they have to go to the mansions of so they can have a fundraiser for people who have no common interest with somebody who was born in Southwest Philadelphia to the son of a union electrician for who, for some reason, votes Republican. Don't know why. but Because uh, they hate black people. Uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah, and Jews probably. Uh, yeah, sure. Why not? I don't know. I think they've they've, they've taken on, that crowd's taken on a more nuanced view of my people. 
Because yeah, it, 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 it gives it, them a license to hate Muslims with a, with a passion narrative. and a justification because they're supporting Israel. Right. And, and they came from an area of just abject... They came from a mindset of abject fear that the, the other... That this community they're not... Uh, that they're not in is going to just destroy the community they're in. And they blamed the inner city issue not on poverty, but on black people. And it kind of... It kind of never resonated with me. I, I, I was uh, I was an altar boy. I I always enjoyed the words of Jesus, not so much the Bible itself, but right. and I always had empathy for people who were laying on park benches because they needed a fix and they were sick. And I never had that. I never had that feeling that they're not human the way I'm human. I always had that feeling that I'm lucky that my circumstances that I don't, right. ha- that I don't exist with this. Uh, I was 18. Uh, they said, you should, you're going to vote. You're going to register Republican or we'll kick you out. Really? Yeah. 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 That's, that's lunatic. It is lunatic. And I signed the thing in front of them. I sent it in. And then the very first chance I got, I went to the Delaware County committee or Delaware County, what is it called? Delaware County... Bureau of Elections? Yes. And I changed my registration to Democrat, and I started to get into local politics. So you were a, a clandestine Democrat. Yeah. Well, no, because I told them immediately. Oh, okay. And it was basically... It was, I'll call your bluff. I, I didn't like the way it was done. I, I don't agree with your politics, and you guys know this. This These... I could tell at the age of 18 that the Republicans then weren't offering anything for anyone who wasn't a millionaire. And it still blows my mind to this day that they have captured so many to, to vote against their best interests out of abject fear. And so, so then this election. did you move into your own apartment immediately or did you crash on friends' couches for a little bit? They, they laughed it off. They said, I'll grow out of it. That it's a, that I'm a, that I'm a, college liberal and okay. once i get money and once i understand the real world and i start paying taxes uh, the old Winston I, 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 like how, I like how i yeah. turn two people from southwest philly into texans all of a yeah. sudden but uh yeah so, so let me ask you something so you were a democrat almost from the time you were eligible to vote yep i was a democrat from the exact time i was eligible to vote and you were green party and a couple of i countries. was actually initially registered as a democrat okay. and then when i had to register in new york state to vote in elections up there i've registered as a green party okay. member when i came back to pennsylvania i registered independent because i at by that point i realized the green party was a complete shit show and was looking at well, what else is out there? And maybe I'll just be independent and see if there's a socialist organization worth joining. And then I met someone running for a local office as a Democrat. I said, oh, let me get on the committee and I'll, I'll be able to help you from behind the scenes. So, so let me right. – this has been my trajectory in the Democratic Party. Before I was even eligible to register, I was a true believer Democrat from when I was mm. like 13, 14 years old. I guess when I was a little kid I was. Yeah. As I've, and then when I worked for the party, I was definitely a true believer Democrat. When I got to be about 24, 25, I stopped being a true believer Democrat and became, I think, a socialist who saw the Democratic Party as the best means to affect electoral change, kind of like that incremental change that Chomsky talks mm-hmm. about. I, I don't see it as – I don't identify as a Democrat anymore no. so much. I say I'm a leftist I or I'm a socialist. 
as a Democratic committee person, let me just say that I formally uh, support the Democratic Party and all of its principles. And I, and, and I, <laughs> I support the Democratic Party as well. Wink, wink. Monetarily and in other ways. But at the same time, I'm not – I'm a cafeteria Democrat, I guess, now, if you want to call it that. Um, I don't think that every item in the platform or every point of the agenda is necessary – or is even the right thing to do. I guess, um, no. I guess you didn't hear the Clinton wing of the party close the cafeteria down yeah, to, cut, well, to, to cut costs. Yeah, mm. so yet the, the champagne room is still open, but not, Absolutely. Not, the, uh, not the cafeteria for us working people. Um, so I don't know that I st- I'm still a registered Democrat. And Me too. But, but when it comes down to it, 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 it's not the same thing it used to be for me. No. Well, I think the beauty of the Democratic Party and – it's it's more true of the Democratic Party than it is of the Republican Party, but it's also kind of true about the Republican Party, is that neither one is a political party. They're broad political coalitions. They have... I can agree with that. And I like to think of it as, you know, they, they, I was describing the DNC to someone in a discussion that this is not a, a monolithic organization. It's an arena for struggle. And we join... That's, that's a good way to look at we it. We join these organizations not because, you know... These organizations have changed their ideologies and who they represent dramatically over the course of the mm-hmm. past 150 or so and years, and they will continue to do so because as long as we have a first-past-the-post system, yep. you're always going to wind up having two broad coalitions vying for that first position, and they're at different times. There, people are going to enter and leave. You know, we, we talk about entryism, right? We we join this party and work from the inside. Entryism is what American politics is all about, and not just for socialists. It's for all these natural um, interest, you know, factions that, you know, whether they be big planters, whether they be working class people in cities, whether they be uh, police officers, whether they be... Religious nuts. Religious nuts, whatever, whoever they are, they go to, they go to wherever their interests will both, will be best represented in that particular moment of in time. I mean, there were long stretches in American history where, you know, the religious right, the, that constituency as we see them now, were aligned with the Democrats, or they were not yeah. involved in politics at all, and they would come out of, of hibernation to get involved with the big push for temperance, or the big push for, you know, uh, electing an anti-war candidate. They were pacifists for years, yeah. right? So I think, like, people's politics, they, they change with the times, and parties do too. And so th- these are arenas for struggle, and we... And I'm a tactical Democrat. Right now, right. the Democratic Party is where I belong because it's it's where I can affect the most change mm-hmm. um, and find the most allies for the issues that I care about and actually make a difference in electoral politics. And, and what I'll say about the Democratic Party now, despite my misgivings about things they've done, candidates they've run, things like that, it's still the last best chance for change. No, definitely. Country. Yeah. Um, and that, that is worth fighting for. Holy shit. <laughs> That's a depressing thought on but, my hand. But it's true. It's uh, true. That, and, it is true. Yep. And it needs to be maintained. It needs to be supported. A pile of shit's better than radioactive waste. And now more than ever, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I'd like to you know plug the organizations that I'm involved with that I think work to you know to put pressure on this broad coalition. Groups like Reclaim Philadelphia, groups like the Democratic Socialists of America. Yep. There are other caucuses and organizations that work within democratic politics, and I think that ultimately is um, 
you get into you get inside this large organization and then you find your people within it and you organize within it and it's it all comes down to finding enough people who already agree with you and deciding that you're all going to push in the same direction at the same time yep i'd like to make one uh if you're out there listening to us and you're on social media and you see something that you disagree with facebook you're on twitter you're on reddit I know it's easy not to engage, but the more people that engage those issues, the more people that see there are people who oppose those issues, the more likely they are to think, well, maybe the other, maybe the other side has something to say. Maybe they're not wrong. Maybe I should listen to them. So when, when the only, when the only people talking are the people who are screaming hate Mm -hmm. and you're sitting there thinking, well, that's not right. Speak up. Yeah. And, and so that message goes out to everyone who's listening. I hope All that of you. I hope that's more than just my friend James. But um, Cliff's going to listen. Oh, Cliff's going to listen. Yeah, great. Hi, Cliff. My wife doesn't listen. Yeah, my wife probably won't listen either. No, I, no. All right. Well, I guess that's that. I love you. Yeah.